the reading, um, our first for the reading is Acts 27, verse 1 to 20. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to the centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the North Easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cowder, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid that it would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up hope of being saved.
Thanks so much, Anna. Um, it's quite long and convoluted to that reading, and um, there's more to come. It's a long reading today, so we're going to do it in three parts. So Anna's going to be back here later to read more of that. Um, but if you haven't followed on, hopefully we'll make some things clear as we go along. My name is Josh, and I'm one of the elders at Christchurch and one of the staff. Um, and keep that passage in the Bible open because we're going to spend some time now um, hearing God speak to us through that. Um, um, I came across some funny quotes this week. Um, a, a quote from an American actress from the last century. Um, she said something quite funny. Um, she said, I don't exercise. If God wanted me to exercise, or if God wanted me to bend over, he'd have put diamonds on the floor. It's quite witty. And next to that, where I found this quote, there was another quote about a different topic. It was a football manager who didn't like players kicking the ball high up in the air, but he wanted them to play the ball on the ground. And he said, if God wanted us to play football on the clouds, he'd have put grass up there. Now, they're being funny, but I like the logic that they're using. They're saying if God intended for us to behave a certain way, well then surely he'd have made that quite intuitive. He'd have made it obvious in the way we're made, the way things work, that this is what God wants us to do. Um, another one I saw, if God wanted us to use recipes, he wouldn't have given us grandmothers. But although these quotes are just a bit silly, they're just making their own point. Those of us who take God a bit more seriously than that, I think we can often take it and use that same logic. We can think, well, if God wanted me to be over there, well, he wouldn't have put me over here. If God wanted me to work in politics, he wouldn't have allowed me to become a, a teacher. He would have blocked my path into that. If God really wants me to live in an area of, in that area of the city, well then he'll make it possible, he'll make a house available there. No, not that one yet. And the problem with that logic is that we can basically use our circumstances to justify anything we like. I saw this t-shirt. If God wanted us, or if God had intended us to drink beer, he would have given us stomachs. Now, I'm not saying that you mustn't drink beer, I'm saying that you can see how you can justify anything with this logic. If we think, well, if God wanted me to do something different, I'd be doing it. Therefore, I should be doing what I'm doing now. That just doesn't add up. And we also use that same logic the other way around. We think, well, if I'm doing something and it's hard, well, surely God doesn't want me to do that. And so here's the question. Are my circumstances the fact that I have a stomach, or the fact that um, I have the grasses on the floor, are my circumstances meant to be, for me, a guide as to what God wants me to be doing? If God wants me to move closer to my family, am I to expect that he will make it straightforward for me to find a house and a job in that other city? If God wants me to invite my co-worker to read the Bible with me once a week, then am I to expect that God will open the doors of me having a five-minute quiet conversation in a non-rushed kind of environment so I can invite him? And the flip side, if, God, if I don't have the opportunity to ask my friends to read the Bible, if he's ill on that day or he's missed work or something and I can't have that conversation, am I to take it that God is saying to me, oh, no, no, that's not what you should be doing right now? I've known a lot of Christians that think, if I'm doing what God wants me to do, then God will make it all work out. 
If I'm doing the right thing, if I'm on the right path, God will put me in the right place at the right time and make that work out and work smoothly. And if God doesn't want me to do that, he'll make it hard. So if life is hard doing that, well, surely God doesn't want me doing that. Well, the thing is, it's not really true. At least it's not necessarily true like you'd expect it. In fact, as we're going to see in the passage today, the person who's living in obedience to God, the person who's doing what God wants, who's doing the completely the right thing, may actually find themselves in a situation that goes completely and horribly and terribly wrong. So that means we need to be able to discern when God is not telling us to stop, but telling us to press on in obedience. And that's what's helpful in today's passage, because we find a Christian doing what they know God has told them to do, and yet their story is a totally unexpected story. As we enter into verse 1 of the passage, there's a key bit of background that makes this whole story very, very unexpected. And there's a clue to it in the very first words of verse 1, when it was decided we'd sail for Italy. The background to this story is the main person involved, Paul. He's been told by Jesus to take the message of Jesus far and wide. And he's been told directly by the risen Jesus to go and take the message of Jesus to the city of Rome. And it doesn't get much further and wider than that. Now Paul is obedient to what God has called him to do. He is going to go to Rome and declare the truth about Jesus. And so he's always pressing on to do just what God has told him to do. He's doing the right thing, but he keeps on facing a couple of problems that might make him think that this is not what God wants him to do. But the first problem has happened before this chapter, and he's been put in prison before he can make travel arrangements to go to Rome. So instead of going to Rome, he's in prison. He's sat on his backside in a dark and dreary cell. But he knows God wants him to go to Rome. So as a prisoner, he does make a legal appeal to go to a court in Rome. So that he will go to Rome eventually, but the problem is he's going to be going to Rome as a prisoner, not as a free man. His story of obedience and trust is unexpectedly frustrating. And the second problem comes in this passage that Paul begins this journey to Rome. Finally, he's on his way to Rome. And amongst all of the details that we've read about where exactly in the sea he goes and putting down anchors, the big thing that happens in this passage is that his journey to Rome is not going well. It is a terrible journey, and it does not look at all like he's going to get to Rome. God's told him, go to Rome, and yet he's gone put in prison. God's told him, go to Rome, and his ship is sailing wildly, of course. Verse 7, we made slow headway. The wind did not allow us to hold our course. Thanks, God. Verse 9, much time had been lost. Paul warns the centurion, verse 10 and 11, and whoever else he can talk to, that this voyage is going to be a disaster. And from verse 14, it gets worse and worse and worse. God says, go to Rome, and then his ship is going away in Rome. And the one thing that makes all of this more and more baffling is this. In the book of Acts, if you been with us so far, we've learned that nothing can stop the message of Jesus going out to the world. In particular, we've learned that it can't be stopped by people who oppose it. But the thing stopping Paul is the wind, is the weather. God's directly in control of that, right? No one else is stopping Paul. It's God's doing. It's God who sent the wind. It's God who sent the storm. So it's God who says go to Rome, and it's God who sends the storm. So the question is, why? 
Why is God making Paul's life so difficult if he's doing the right thing? Why is God making it so difficult for Paul to obey him? Why is God making Paul's ship get lost in the ocean? So that by the end of this passage, verse 18, 19, 20, the sailors are losing all hope. Now, some of us might have a good textbook answer to that. Some of us might think, well, I know. God's got a purpose behind everything here. We know God's in charge. We know God is sovereign and there is a purpose for what he's doing. He does things his own way, not the way we expect them. Just because Paul is doing right, we know it won't guarantee it goes smoothly. Well, yes, exactly. Exactly, that is all very, very true. But this passage is here so that it challenges us if we don't see that that's true in our own experience too. If someone in your own family is harsh and divisive, but you do what God has said to do, you forgive them. Well, what about now when a hurricane comes, your family members feel you betrayed them. They accuse you of taking sides. You've done the right thing, but God sends you a mini hurricane. Would you start now to think, well, why if this is the right thing to do, is God punishing you for it? Maybe it's a sign you're wrong to forgive them. After all, when you do the right thing, God's not going to make things work out, right? Or if an incident happens at work, and you've seen what happened, and you tell the truth about what happened. You're doing what God has sent you to do, but then he sends a mini hurricane as people wonder how you could be so self-righteous and betray their trust. And you think, if this is the right thing to do, then why, God, have you allowed this to get worse? Not better. I thought doing the right thing, being on the right track, was going to make things okay, not make things get worse. Well, look, this is the value of a passage like this. It helps us to stop connecting doing the right thing with God will make everything work out. Now, as an aside, it is true that God does have a purpose behind all of this. We'll see more of this next week. Um, we learn that um, Paul is going to end up on an island where he does get to speak the gospel to people who might never have heard it. There is a purpose. But you know what? We can't always understand that purpose in the moment. You can be sure. When Paul's handcuffed below deck and all the sailors above are panicking and throwing everything overboard, Nobody can navigate by the stars, where on earth in the world they are. You can be sure that when Paul is under, under the deck with his hands cuffed, he's got no idea what God is up to. In the moment, you're not going to know the purpose. <clears throat> but we still should be not connecting, doing the right thing, with God makes things go well. Those two things are not to be expected together. By people doing, but people doing the right thing often have this unexpected story of trouble and not ease. And that's not because God's being harsh, he's not being difficult. It's unexpected because we've got the wrong idea, I think, of, of what God is like and the wrong idea of what we are like. If we just imagine that it's God's job to make our lives plain sailing as long as we do what he says. But here's the truth. The truth is God does want you to have the best life you can have. But the best life you can have, in his eyes, is for you to be transformed to be more and more like the person of Jesus. For you to live a life that is self-giving and other-centred, and one way your comfort doesn't come top of the list. As far as God's concerned, is that your highest goal is to learn grace and love and patience. 
And if you're doing the right thing, then God is growing you in Christ-likeness. But you know what? It's not for your best that you find everything easy. It's not for your best that you're immune to the effects of a fallen world. So we can connect doing the right thing with God growing us in grace. But as long as we connect doing the right thing with God makes things go well, then the troubled story of the obedient Christian is always going to be quite unexpected for us. But although we might not always understand what God's plan is, or what God is doing in the moment, behind it all there is always a clear plan. We're going to see how that unfolds in the next section of the passage. We're going to get Anna up to read um, the next bit, which is Acts 27, verses 21 to 26. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Um, if any of you work in an open plan office or a shared office, I'm sure at some point you'd have found um, this contraption would have come in handy. It is called, it's made by Panasonic, it's called Wear Space. And um, it's this device goes around your head, and inbuilt into it, you can't see it, but it's got noise-cancelling headphones in there. And it narrows your field of vision, so that all you can see is what's in front of you. Now, I can't decide whether I think this is an amazing invention, whether it's massively helpful, would get you, you'd be able to do loads of work doing it like this. It could be so helpful, it's revolutionary, and I can't decide whether I want one. Or whether it's actually completely ridiculous and defies the point of being human altogether and is an affront to our humanity. Um, because it is quite ridiculous. But you can see the point. There are things around us when we're trying to get something done that demand our attention. Things around us that catch our attention, but they're less important. They're not always that. They're not as important as what we're supposed to be getting on with. What we've been given to get on with is very important, but the things that we can see are less important. And in this passage, I wonder if Paul's got kind of spiritual wear space on. So in amongst all the details about securing the ship with ropes and throwing cargo overboard and being half-starved, Paul speaks in these verses, verses 21 to 26, and he says, guys, I know all this has happened, but there is, he says, a clear plan that has been unchanged through all of this. He doesn't give a reason for why the storm has come, but in saying what he's saying, he, he shows his focus is not on his circumstances, but on God's word. Paul's focus is not on his circumstances, but on the promise. So thankfully, Paul, because he'd had a word from God, 
He didn't take the storm as a sign that God doesn't want him to go to Rome. He didn't think, well, this storm is here, so maybe God doesn't want me to go. Because actually, circumstances could be a sign of anything, right? If God wanted us to drink beer, he'd have given us stomachs. The circumstance could be read to mean anything you want it to mean. But no, more clear, more true, more certain is what God has already said to Paul. And Paul reveals he's had a visit from an angel. But there's something interesting. The angel only really says what Paul has already been told before. God is sending you to Rome, Paul. So, yeah, he's sending you to Rome. So, yeah, you're going to get to Rome. That's what's going to happen. You see the hurricane? You see the panicked sailors? You see that smashed up sail and the damaged ship? Well, yeah, that's just the outside circumstances. That hasn't changed anything. God's going to get you to Rome. All this around the outside, that's nothing to do with God's plan for your life. You know God's plan for your life, or you're going to go to Rome. Now, I do get that for you and I, it would be easy, wouldn't it, if God had given us that clear vision of his plan for our life, and then a visit from an angel to confirm that. But let's at least learn from this, that we can be turning our eyes from our circumstances to what God has told us in his word. So yes, I don't know about your circumstances, I don't know, and you don't know, where God will put you next year. Yes, you don't know which of your neighbours God is about to give you a chance to read the Bible with. And yes, you don't know what your bank account will look like, so it's hard to know how much to give financially to charities, to church. Or maybe you do, maybe God has spoken to you, but for the rest of us, we don't really know much about God's plan for our life, but we do actually have it written in the Bible. God's clear plan for our life. A clear plan that is above all of those things. And Paul's example shows the church that we should be guided by that over the circumstances. The clear plan for our lives is, is basically all that God has promised and all that he's commanded. But let me just go through it in three parts. Part one, God's plan is he loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross in your place. So that if you're a Christian, you're adopted into his family, you can call him father. The promise of God that will never change is that you never have to pay for your sin if you trust in Jesus. So God's plan for your life is that that truth so shapes your heart that you treat others with love and grace, love your neighbours, yourself. Whatever hurricane comes that makes you rethink that, well that truth hasn't changed. That's God's plan for your life, to rest in Jesus. The second part, God gives his spirit to Christians to make them more like Jesus. God's promise in advance to us, just as much as he promised Paul to go to Rome, his promise to you and I, is that he's working in us by his spirit to give us power to resist sin and grow in love. God's plan for your life is clear. Keep in step with the spirit and grow in patience, love, joy. And whatever circumstances make that hard to do, I want you to know that that plan hasn't changed. That's God's will for your life. And the third part is that God's plan is that through the church, the whole world will be invited to know God's plan, to know Jesus and the truths of that plan. So the promise is that God's worldwide mission will never fail. So God's plan for your life is actually clear. To join in with that mission, to live and speak among others, 
in a way that points onto this truth. There's no circumstance in your life that will change that either. So we do have a clear plan for our lives. Rest in Jesus. Keep in step with his spirit as he transforms you to be like Jesus. And join in with what God is doing in the world as you live and speak among other people to point to Jesus. So, verse 25 applies to you and I as well. Where's that from? Oh, it's on the screen. It's in your Bibles. Verse 25. Keep up your courage. For I have faith in God that it will happen, just as he said. So what this means is that your circumstances are never God telling you something opposite to this. He's never saying that because it's hard, God is punishing you for your sin. That's not what your circumstances are saying, because you've had a clear word, a clear plan from God. God is never saying in your circumstances, in your hopelessness, and in your despair, that it's okay to go back to sinning. Because you've had a clear word from God, that that's what he wants you to turn from. And he's never saying that because it doesn't sit well with your personality, then being part of a church is something you can just stick to one side. Because you've had a clear word from God that that is something he wants you to do in your life. And the opposite, in the pressure of hard relationships, money worries, bad health, a life-sucking job, you won't know why God has sent you that hurricane, but you do what Paul does. Return to what God has told you. He does have a plan for your life. You're forgiven, you're adopted, you're being transformed in love and grace. God is drawing people everywhere to himself, so you live in that plan. In the hurricane, the plan is that you rest in God's love. In the chaos, the plan is that you love your neighbour. In the hopelessness, the plan is that you resist temptation. In the shipwreck, the plan is that you meet with Jesus Christ, love his church, and connect with Liverpool. And there's an amazing effect when Christians do this. There's an amazing effect in this passage when Paul does this. Because he is now being to the people on that ship like Jesus. He is the beacon of life when there's despair. In this passage, Paul is the, is the blessing to the others on board. He is the reason that they're saved. And that's the third thing we see. We'll see in this next final reading that there's saved enemies. And that's going to come and read from verse 27 to the end of the passage. On the fourteenth night that we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was forty metres deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found it was thirty metres deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and you have gone without food. You, you haven't eaten anything. Now, I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. 
After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognise the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the, to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck the sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Thanks, Anna. Um, we're going to look at the people in the boat um, with Paul. Four times in this whole chapter, we see that the actions of others um, are always either self-interested or cowardly or both. In verse 11, back at the start, we had read that the owner and the pilot of the ship recklessly decide to head right into the, the wind and the storm, um, presumably because they want to get to their destination on time. This is a grain ship. There's going to be a payday when they reach Rome, finally. When the ship's at the mercy of the wind and the waves, the sailors panic in verses 18 and 19, and recklessly jettison cargo and tackle. The tackle is the kind of thing they're going to need to sail the ship. Things like ropes and pulleys and anchors and even sails. They're recklessly giving up. And just now we read that the sailors had planned to make a secret getaway and leave the ship with everybody on it to just wreck and sink. And then later, at the very end of the passage, we've got the soldiers who were there so they could be in charge of the prisoners. The soldiers got their swords out, they're planning to kill all the prisoners. But the striking feature of this story and how it all pans out is that safety is found by listening to and sticking with Paul. And so Paul rises in this passage to be like a Jesus-type figure, not to show us how amazing Paul is, but to show us that when God is in charge and he sends a hurricane that we just can't explain, but when Christians are in that and they are unswerving in living by what they know to be true, not what keeps changing, that Christians become models of Jesus to those around them. Last week we heard wonderful testimonies from people who were being baptised. One of them described growing up in a Muslim country, but meeting a Christian there. And although that Christian was in a country with laws against Christians, laws that said you can't practice what you're doing here, laws that would even get them into trouble if they were doing what Christians normally would do, the contentment and kindness of this Christian was a model of Jesus. It stood out. She was a blessing to all those people around her. 
I hear all the time stories of Christians, people in our church, in workplaces, full of people who are interested in promotion and money and success and getting a good reputation. And they're not doing any favours for the Christian, but there's always something about this believer that brings blessing to that whole workplace. There's an air about them that is not argumentative or grumbling. There's a perspective about them that doesn't turn little failings into massive dramas. They're interested in the lives of other people. Because when Christians are in the habit of reminding themselves of God's promises and plan, when they hear that from other Christians, when they're reading their Bible, when they're praying, when they come to church and have others remind them of that, they're learning from others how that gets lived out. When that happens, people who are Christians become people who make other people's lives better. Even people like these sailors and soldiers who are just self-interested and quite mercenary. In the storm, it's good to have Christians around. Paul's confidence in God's word and God's ability to carry out that word, in this passage at the end, it enables the whole crew to be refreshed, to be encouraged as they eat. Now, Paul's not being a really nice person here. He's being like Jesus. He's the one who, who had an unexpected story, the one who people knew was sent from God as God's own son, but who told his followers, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests and teachers of the law, and be killed, and rise three days later. You couldn't get a more unexpected story than that of Jesus. And yet, that wasn't strange or weird or the plan got off the rails. There was a clear plan in all he was doing. We know that God planned before the dawn of time that Jesus would come and live that out and suffer even though he was doing the absolute right thing because the plan was that he would do that and go to the cross to save the entire world. And when Jesus did that, the outcome is his enemies are saved. People who are self-interested find that in what Jesus has done, there is a way to God. And the call to the church is to be like Jesus. The call to the church is to step into that unexpected story of difficulty and suffering, but know that there is a clear plan. To know that he loves you passionately and deeply. To know that God could do nothing greater for us than to send Jesus to take our place. And in that security of living in God's plan, we know that he is committed to sending his spirit to transform us. And so we can be like Jesus and take on board that suffering for the sake of other people, even if there are enemies coming to be saved. And so the call is to face these unexplainable difficulties without wondering, somehow, oh, God's not pleased with me because things aren't going right, or without concluding that God, somehow God's not bothered about my new life in him, or that he's not drawing the world to himself, because those things don't seem to be going right. Whatever your storm, however helpless you are in it, God's promises and purposes haven't changed. And it saves those around you. So the call to the church is to press on in life with these truths shaping and guiding us. When you're planning to meet up with some people to pray, and an unexplained obstacle comes up, someone's ill, or a train is cancelled, or a work commitment gets in the way, 
You know what is true, that building up other Christians is good for you and it's good for them. So don't take the obstacle as a sign that this prayer triplet's not worth carrying on with. You press on. When you're giving generously, but your situation means you have to manage your budget more carefully, well, you don't take that as a sign that God doesn't want you to be generous anymore. You know what he said, that generosity over luxury is Christ-likeness. So you press on. When you're just feeling like a mess as a Christian, when you're feeling like you're just not doing enough to make God pleased with you, the storm that overwhelms you isn't a sign that God's angry. You know the truth, that you're perfectly forgiven. You're made new at the cross. So press on and find rest in Jesus. Paul never had to ask, why has God changed his mind? Paul never had to ask, surely if I'm doing the right thing, God will make it straightforward, not send this terrible shipwreck. And we don't have to ask that either. His word is enough for us in whatever storm we find ourselves in the middle of. 